Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your body's tired. Your mind's tired. Your bank account's tired. Yeah. Emotionally. Emotionally. Just yeah. exhausted. It just kind of felt like, to, at least to me, like, I don't think this is in the cards for us. Mm-hmm. Like, we're trying like we're banging our head against a wall. It's been six years. Look at, look at the tears. Look at the medical stuff. Look at the money. We had known by that time period from the things that we had been through as people, life is precious, it's short. How many more years do we want to be putting ourselves through this? And for us, it was like none. No more years. Yeah, and so. with Eric's experience, it's like it's so rare that you meet someone who almost died to try to have children. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate that. I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor. <laughs> That's Eric and Melissa Jones, host of the podcast Living Child Free with Eric and Melissa. In this episode, we're going to tackle a topic that many infertile couples just don't want to talk about. We've called our personal story a happy ending, both because we got our baby after five years of trying, but also to acknowledge that it's not how things work out for everyone and that we got lucky. But that phrase, happy ending, implies that everyone else who didn't end up with a baby is having an unhappy ending. Yeah, it's definitely a loaded phrase and probably an unhealthy concept for infertility in general. A happy ending doesn't have to be an ending with a child. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to interview Eric and Melissa. But the other reason is that they have one of the most intense, crazy infertility stories I've ever heard. Genuinely insane. Let's meet them. Eric and Melissa started dating in 2003 and got married eight years later in 2011. They're a warm, funny couple. And if you listen to their podcast, you'll hear that they like to bicker and correct each other a lot. Here they are talking about when they first met. The discrepancy about the blind date is that she thinks that she did not see a picture of me before we met. And I think that that's impossible, that one of your friends could set you up. No, I saw a picture, but I said it wasn't very good, and the lighting wasn't good, and he was in the background, and I really, it's like I could see his bill, but I couldn't really see what you looked like. By the way, that's not what she said before. She's changing it for the Huffington Post people. (laughs) Before she said that she didn't know what I looked like, and I said that's impossible. I didn't really know what you looked like. Now now the story is that the picture was fuzzy. Like any happy, committed couple, the topic of kids did come up for Eric and Melissa, but even at the beginning, they had an unusual and complicated obstacle. At what point in your relationship did you guys start talking kids? Well, a little bit of backstory. Um, when she met me, I actually had a daughter. Uh, this was from a previous relationship. She, my daughter was born with uh, special needs and she needed round the clock care. And so I'm bringing that up to say that um, by the time, so my daughter passed away in 2004. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. But. Um, after that sort of traumatic experience of not just her death, but her life with all of her issues, I was very sort of gun shy about the idea of having a kid again. But I knew that Melissa was really interested in kids. So before I proposed, 
I sort of had to have a talk with myself, like, am I going to be willing to give this another shot for the sake of this woman that I love? Eric's daughter had died from complications from hollow prosencephaly, which is when a fetus's brain fails to properly develop into two hemispheres. Her short, medically complicated life and then death was a terrible loss for him, and he wasn't sure if emotionally he could ever have another child. Well, I think we kind of put the conversation on hold. When, 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 he, when his daughter passed away for a couple years, uh, you know, obviously he was intensely grieving, so it, it wasn't talked about much in that time period. I knew that there was a potential that he wouldn't want to have more children. As, as time went on, I, I never became one of those people who hated kids. I've always loved kids, loved babies to this day. And so I, I would see my friends would have kids and they would be happy. And I, I always intellectually know like the chances of it happening again are probably very low when we would get all every kind of prenatal test. So I, and also therapy. I was in therapy for years. So I think all of those things just sort of led to a little bit of a softening. And I was aware that it was really just fear. After giving it a lot of thought and trying to picture their future together, Eric and Melissa agreed that they would try to have kids once they were married. But of course, as listeners of this podcast know, it's sometimes easier said than done. After six months of trying to conceive without any results, Melissa went to the doctor for tests. When they couldn't find anything wrong, it was Eric's turn. He went in for semen analysis. I think that they just basically said your semen is fine, but you have very low volume. It was like the quality is fine, yeah. but the volume is low, and this is your issue. It That's was like, okay, this is your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. This is what the issue is. And and then it was basically like, oh, well, based on this, you guys, you, IUI will just be a waste of money. You need to just skip straight to IVF with ICSI. And just to remind our listeners... IUI is intrauterine insemination, which is a relatively cheap and easy procedure in which sperm is placed directly in the uterus by a doctor. In contrast, IVF with ICSI, which means intracytoplasmic sperm injection, is way more expensive. In addition to all the normal drugs and injections with IVF, ICSI is an additional expensive step where the doctors select individual sperm and inject each one directly into a woman's harvested eggs. In dollar terms, the difference between an IUI and IVF with ICSI is the difference between $1,000 and $20,000. So it was it was a shock. Um, like, just took my breath away. It was I, I was alone in the appointment at that point, and it was really emotional. And I was I was terrified that based on his history, he wouldn't be completely like uninterested in going that route, and um, which would be understandable. So my fear of never having kids, like, just dropped on me so hard that day because I thought he might not want to do this. It might not work anyway. I knew how expensive IVF was. So for me, it was, it was a really devastating day. Because of Eric's history, Eric and Melissa wanted to avoid a long, drawn-out IVF process. So a sympathetic doctor made a suggestion. Eric could talk to a male fertility specialist a surgeon who might be able to find the source of his low semen volume and fix it directly. So Eric went to see a specialist who found the problem right away. The seminal vesicles are a pair of glands near the prostate that help secrete some of the fluid that makes up a man's semen. Eric's vesicles were partially blocked, so that fluid wasn't making it out of his body, which is why he had low semen volume. It sounds like bad news, but actually it's good news. 
Eric and Melissa were relieved because it's basically a plumbing problem. It's something that can be fixed. And what he wanted to do was recommend a surgery to go in there and basically like clean it up, open it up and everything could flow freely and then we would probably have a baby. And for us, he, we were like, okay, cool, let's yeah. do it. It was kind of a weight off because he seemed really optimistic. And he made it seem like it really wasn't a big deal. Yeah, he's like, it's this little outpatient thing and it's, it's under urology so our insurance is going to cover it versus 20 grand, 15 grand, whatever on IVF. So we were like, we were really excited. Eric and Melissa prepared for surgery. They were grateful that they might be able to skip IVF. They were trying to schedule the surgery after Eric's law school classes, but their doctor assured them that Eric would be out of the surgical center the same day and ready for sex just a few days after that. Based on this optimistic recovery outline for them, they set the surgery for just a day or two before the barrister's ball, which is basically prom for law school students. We did the surgery and everything seemed fine, but I didn't really feel well at the end. And he said, you're probably just, you know, feeling the effects of surgery. He was like, everything is fine. The surgery went well. Just don't get constipated. And it was a weird thing to say. But it's apparently a normal side effect of surgery is your system kind of shuts down. You have to wake it back up. Yeah. And he said, I don't know if he said don't get constipated or just let us know if you get constipated. I felt like you said don't get constipated because I was like, this is a little TMI, but that's (laughs) not a problem for me. Constipation. (laughs) I'm the other way. So I was like, like, I got this. Yeah, don't worry about that. We're good. Yeah. Eric felt worse and worse over that weekend, but decided they should still go to the barrister's ball. You got to remember, I'm thinking sooner or later, I'm going to feel better. Maybe if we go to this thing and being out and being around friends, maybe I'll feel great by the end. I was waiting for the negative side effects to go away. And I just remember spending probably a couple hours on the toilet and nothing was happening. But as I said, I normally don't have that problem. Mm. So I was like, well, it's, it's going to come. I'll just give it some time. <laughs> and it never, never came. The next two weeks were hell for Eric. He couldn't go to the bathroom and his pain levels were getting higher. Eric and Melissa visited the doctor twice. Yeah. And we kept going into the doctor. They'd say, OK, do this, do that. Walk a lot. Take hot baths. Take this medicine. Take a stool softener. And. At one week in, he got a fever, and because I was calling even on-call doctors. I mean, he was in so much. We go into the ER, they do a scan of everything, and they're like, there's nothing wrong. You may, you probably have like a minor infection that you got from the surgery. Here's some antibiotics. We'll do a culture. Culture comes back a couple of days later negative. He just keeps getting like increasingly worse. The ER sent them home. But days later, Eric still had constant stomach cramps that never let up, and the pain and physical strain was wearing him down. Melissa got more and more frightened. He looked at me. He's laying on the couch. We were trying to get sleep, but we couldn't. he couldn't sleep, so I'd be up all night with him. And he was on the couch. I was on the chair. And he just looked over at me in pain. It was just like, am I going to die? And... That was within a couple of minutes, you know, we were in the car on our way to the ER. But, I mean, he could barely walk when we got there. He was, like, doubled over in pain. Now, remember, this was two weeks after a simple outpatient procedure that was supposed to heal in a day. The ER doctors finally diagnosed Eric's condition, and it was something he had actually investigated on his own during those two weeks of hell. 
as anybody does, you start Googling symptoms. And one of the symptoms was perforated bowel. And I remember bringing it up to one of the uh, people in the, the urologist's office. And one of the symptoms of a perforated bowel is that your um, abdomen feels very hard, like almost like a piece of wood. And he touched my, you know, my abdomen. And he said, I think he jokingly said no, because if you had a perforated bowel, you wouldn't be able to walk, you wouldn't be able to talk, you wouldn't be able to have this conversation with me. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I guess scratch that one off the list. And fast forward, I actually did have a perforated bowel. And when I when we went into the, the ER that time, they did some sort of test that finally showed it on like a CT scan or something yeah. like that. They could see that the doctor comes back and this is like, maybe one in the morning or something, comes back and says there's free air in his abdomen. So they can see there's air in the abdomen, which then they know there's a perforation somewhere. And that means, you know, that's toxic to your system if anything from your bowels is leaking into your abdomen. Eric was rushed into emergency surgery to repair his bowels, but doctors explained to Melissa that they might already be too late. An infection had spread through his body and was having a terrifying effect. Because of the perforated bowel, Eric was also diagnosed with sepsis. Sepsis is a dangerous condition in which the body's attempt to fight off an infection instead leads to systemic organ failure. It kills over 250,000 Americans each year, and patients are usually diagnosed with one of three escalating levels. Sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. Eric had septic shock, which has a mortality rate of over 50%. In other words, if you get diagnosed with septic shock, especially in your abdomen like Eric, you're probably going to die. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We were so happy that IVFML got some attention. One of the most exciting things that happened was that it landed on Atlantic's top 50 podcasts of 2017. They called our marriage, quote, passive aggressive. Very good, accurate review. (laughs) (laughs) Ringing endorsement. And after all those reviews and messages, we realized that there was one thing we forgot to ask of you guys, which is to review us, to rate us. Yeah, we forgot to do the most basic thing, which is ask you to go to the iTunes store and give us five stars and a nice little recommendation. If IVFML helped you feel heard, 
it helped you find your community or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know. You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com. A lot of you guys have already reached out. Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com. Thanks. Once the doctors discovered Eric was in septic shock, they rushed him into surgery to bypass his perforated bowel. In the waiting room, Melissa was a wreck. And I'm just in shock. I'm exhausted. I'm terrified. And I just start bawling because I'm thinking, okay, my husband just did this procedure mostly because I want to have children. And with everything he's already been through, I'm like, now he's going to be in surgery that he may not come out of. And I, and I also thought that at that time I felt like it was all my fault. But mainly I just was terrified that he wasn't going to make it. And when he did come out of surgery, they kind of gave me a warning of what he was going to look like, what to expect, so I wasn't totally shocked. And they also let me know that just because he made it through the surgery did not mean he was going to make it. He was intubated, so he had a breathing tube down his throat. And um, so it was really scary at first, too, when I came in because I didn't, I was afraid to touch him. I didn't know what to do. You never think you're going to be the wife by the bedside. Thankfully, Eric was one of the minority of people who go into septic shock and survive. Over several days of effort, doctors were able to take him off his ventilator. But his recovery was slow. Eric was completely sedated for four days. And when he finally did wake up, he was in a condition known as intensive care unit delirium. The way I describe what happens in the ICU is like you don't know when it's day or night. And... um. You've also been asleep for so long that like your dreams seem like they last forever. So you sometimes don't know if you're dreaming or you're awake. So you wake up and somebody says something to you and you may reference something that you were just dreaming about. But you don't realize that you're awake because you've been asleep for four days. Mm-hmm. So you really are kind of going crazy. That sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, it is. It's he also terrifying. didn't know where he was. I when didn't know they where I was. No. Wake him up and then he... I remember I thought I was in Spain. I really did. I remember, so what happens every day, the doctors would come and say, where are you? What time is it? Who's and the president? And by that time, I knew they wanted me to say San Diego, but I really thought that I was in Spain. I don't know why. Eric was in the hospital for 25 days total. It was a draining, terrifying experience for the couple, but the consequences of his surgery didn't end there. They couldn't just open Eric up and patch his intestines. They didn't know where the tear was. Instead, he had to have a colostomy, which I'll let Eric describe. Basically what it is is um, when they uh, give you an incision and they um, basically bypass your large intestine. So um, they take your large intestine, put a hole in your stomach, and then pull it out. And then when you defecate, it comes out of that hole and you put a bag on the outside of your skin to collect your your waste. As you can imagine, that was a huge adjustment for Eric and Melissa. Eric had to take a medical leave from school because he'd missed so much class at this point. All of this was caused by a simple outpatient procedure that they did so that they could start a family. And that idea of starting a family, of the fertility treatments, was still sort of hanging there. At first, they were too overwhelmed to even talk about it. Eric had round-the-clock care and physical therapy, but Melissa did eventually broach the subject. And I think that the first time it came up, though, was 
probably a couple months after getting out of the hospital. And I remember bringing it up and I don't remember exactly how I brought it up, but I remember Eric getting, saying like, look, look, look at what has happened. Like we are not having kids. You know, like how basically it was like out of the emotion and the exhaustion of everything that happened. It was like, how, how, how could we even think about that? Like we're, there's no way we're having kids. It's just not going to happen for us. And then that, of course, I think for me, that was the first real wave of grieving because I really thought, well, we're never going back to a fertility clinic. It was that really setting in like, okay, we're not going to be able to have kids together. This is over for us. That conversation was in the heat of Eric's recovery, when they were still rebuilding their lives after his near-death experience. A year later, Eric went in for his colostomy reversal surgery. The burden that was lifted after that surgery was a success because you're always waiting for the shoe to drop. You're always waiting for the next devastating thing. And I thought, okay, she's going to come out, the surgeon, and tell us it didn't work. And when she came out and said everything, I mean, I just started bawling and I felt such a release of a burden being lifted. So, But up until that point, that year was total survival mode. And no longer being in survival mode gave Eric a different perspective than he'd had a few months earlier. Well, that at some point after that, we started to, I think Eric was the one who brought it up, like maybe we should actually go see a fertility doctor because we had moved for, back to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, we haven't seen a, a doctor here. Maybe we should see one here and revisit this. And I was shocked. Mm. We would had enough distance where I guess, you know, he felt comfortable saying that. Yeah. And then for me, I thought, okay, well, if we do IVF, it's pretty much all my body, so I'm okay with that. I would have never been okay with doing anything else that was his after that. But it was like, okay, well, this is my body. And it opened up that whole, it was like the hope can had been closed. Mm. And that was like, we opened it back up. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, maybe we actually like, maybe there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. So Eric and Melissa resumed infertility treatments. And I want to pause here for a second because I think this is the spot in their story where some listeners, including me, know how we want this to turn out. Hearing their story at this point, I want them to be rewarded. I want the IVF to work out. I want their story to be that happy ending we discussed at the beginning, where they both get to laugh years later with a son or daughter and tell them, your dad almost died so you could be here. Right. On some level, we feel like they worked really hard for a baby, and people who sacrifice so much for a child should get one. But it's not how infertility works. So then we actually did do IVF with two different doctors, a total of three rounds, all times with ICSI. And out of all three of those, we only ever ended up with one embryo that we could transfer. Mm. And it didn't work. Mm. We also did acupuncture and took herbs and (laughs) lost weight at that time and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, So after that last round, it was... I think it was, you know, it was just like, okay, it's an, it's an, this is enough. We, we did everything we could. But even what we've been through, there are still people who have said, don't quit. Why are you quitting? Or don't give up. Keep trying. And it's like, you know, or just do this or just do that. And it's like, but like, you know, everything we went through, like, I think we did I think we did everything. I think you tried. I think we tried and we <laughs> we really wanted that kid. You can't say we didn't really want that kid. 
I want to address a topic that I know is on the minds of a lot of our listeners, and that's adoption. Yes, even though we did a whole episode about how telling people to just adopt isn't fair or reasonable, we know a lot of listeners are going to be thinking just that. The short answer is that Eric and Melissa did consider adoption. They went to a seminar before their final IVF, and after listening to the presentation, realized that they did not want to start another lengthy process for a chance to get a child. Here's how Melissa described their decision. An adoption's a beautiful thing, and I have family members and friends who are adopted. But I think you, it, it's not fair to the child if you're not 100% in, that this is something that's for you, that you really want to do, and that you feel really excited about, and you're willing to take on that, that ride for trying to get there. And at that point, we just, I don't think we had it in us to go through more possible losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and more of the emotional roller coaster. I just don't think for us and our health that that was the best decision. Yeah. We just didn't feel like that's where, where uh, we were meant to be. Erica and Melissa's decision to become child-free is inspirational. It's why we wanted them on this podcast. Yeah, again, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but the situation that they found themselves in is something that every infertile couple thinks about. It's always in the back of your head as you are going through every procedure and cutting every check and getting every bad result. And personally, I don't know how I would have reacted in their situation. I think it was like within a couple, maybe a couple months after we had said, okay, we're really done and we're just going to try to figure out how we can have a meaningful life without children. Um we, I had read some books. He had read one or two books about people who had been child-free and, you know, living happy lives. But then we thought, well, are there any documentaries out there? Are there any podcasts? Like, we don't know anyone in this situation that we can learn from. We don't have role models. Like, we wanted to hear from other people and see what is it like or what are you doing or how did you get through this? How did you shift your mentality? And there wasn't anything like that out there. There were some, like I said, some great books that were lifesavers for me and a few blogs, but there were no podcasts, no documentaries that we could find. So that were specifically for people who went through infertility, you know, and then didn't have kids. Um, so I don't even remember how the idea came up, but it was like, we can do a podcast. It was like, well, maybe we should do a podcast. <laughs> and if you listen to our podcast in the very beginning, even now, what, it was was really like a call for help. Like we were asking other people if they had gone through this or they knew anybody and please, we would give our email and ask people to write us in and talk about their experiences. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any like inkling that we were any kind of experts who could give other people advice. We were just reaching out for help. So you were looking for something and it didn't exist, so you just made it instead. Yes. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And we have that support of knowing that there are other people out there who are in our same shoes, who are reaching out, who are also finding comfort in knowing that we're out there. In a sense, Eric and Melissa used their podcast to build the support network that was missing for them and other couples like them. But there's a really good reason Eric and Melissa feel like they have to create their own narrative. And it's because their story isn't what the world, and especially the infertile world, wants to hear. I remember when we were going through IVF and everything, Anna was very glued to these web forums where it's a lot of women, you know, trading stories. And one of the most common posts there is, oh, my God, I just got this result. Someone else who has had this result tell me that it worked out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think people don't want to hear 
the story where it didn't work out. Work. Exactly. exactly. And yeah. I had a love-hate relationship with those forums. It's like mm. I'd get sucked in and then I it would have completely exhaust me. And I was like, I can't do this. But it was, it is a lot of exactly that. That's it's, kind it's, of it's why we did it. It's the grabbing for the hope because you need it in order to gear yourself up for the next thing you have to do to try. Mm-hmm. You can't go through fertility treatments if you don't have a geared up level of hope. We also knew sort of the negative reaction people would have towards the people on the forums and on the Reddit towards people who decided to stop. It was almost like you were banished. They didn't want to hear from you. They didn't think that you belonged on the forums anymore. So just like you said, you pay attention to who your audience is. We realize that people going through infertility probably don't want to listen to us now, mm-hmm. maybe later. Maybe if they they find themselves in a situation where it wasn't successful, maybe they'll come back to it. But we know kind of who's listening and who is not going to listen. We kind of know where we are. We we're a couple. We don't have kids. We and we're, now we're trying to explore that life, but we're not there yet. We haven't quite figured it out. There's still sadness. We still feel like outcasts. Um, we haven't really figured out that great path, but. For me, not to get too philosophical, but I like the idea of trying to figure it out. Maybe Melissa and I won't figure it out, but maybe somebody coming behind us will figure this thing out. But there's been progress because I see it lessening over time and I see us getting more more excited about our future. Um, We have less conversations that have to do with infertility. We have... I think more of a lightness of spirit in our house than we had before. There's not this thing hanging over us as much. So there's little things like that that you start to recognize that are going on that's, and for me, one of them was also actually being like interested in things again outside of, like like before, there could be, let's say, a hobby or something that you used to always do. And then during infertility, you just weren't, you know, you have no energy, you're exhausted. You go to work, you come home, you're exhausted, whatever. I've started to see that like, oh, I'm feeling interested in doing these things again. I'm riding my bike at the beach again. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I took some French classes to get my level of fluency back where it was. Like I'm doing these things that I did not have the energy or interest level to do at all before. Mm. So it's, you kind of just see yourself like, if, if, you're, if you're actively grieving, you're recognizing your feelings, Slowly over time, you start to see things start to get a little bit better. I interviewed a New Zealand author and grief counselor named Lois Tonkin. She called people like Eric and Melissa childless by circumstance. And it's a term that describes a person who wanted to have a child, but doesn't. It could include people who tried fertility treatments for adoption, but weren't successful. It could also be because they haven't found the right partner yet, or if they found a partner that they love, their partner doesn't want to have a child. Lois says that because they're an invisible community, it can be incredibly difficult for them to get any sympathy or understanding for when life brings them down. What are some examples that Lois had? Well, to me, it boils down to like a lack of common courtesy. Like, for example, Lois said that people with children shouldn't thoughtlessly assume that their childless co-workers are going to cover for them or stay late because parents have to go home and care for their kids. It's also about recognizing how so many social celebrations like holidays, Mother's Day, are centered around idealizing only a certain kind of family. 
And the same goes for organizations like churches or social clubs. It's all about how to make the nuclear family feel welcome and comfortable. What I really like about this advice is that it's simple. Lois is just asking us to make emotional space for more kinds of families. Mm -hmm. And it's also a call for people who are in child-centered families to take a moment and realize just how much of American society centers on us and our needs. Totally. Everything is geared around the needs of families like ours, except federal parental leave policies and the crippling price of childcare. Restaurant bathrooms could use some work, too. Work scheduling is a little bit of a problem. What I mean is, yes, the lack of high-quality childcare and parental leave is a huge unsolved issue in our country. But socially, businesses and culture cater to families. People assume we're the norm and that everyone's eventually going to be a parent of some kind. Joking aside, I really do agree that culturally, America feels almost suspicious towards people who don't have kids. And when Anna and I talked about being child-free, if our fertility treatments didn't work out, we weren't just trying to picture our lives without children. We were trying to think about how we were going to readjust to everything. We were trying to think about how we were going to fit into a world that wouldn't make space for us. Right. And it led me to fantasize about how far outside the mainstream I could actually see myself living. Like, wow, maybe without kids, I'll have so much freedom that I could follow Beyonce's tour around the world. And Eric and Melissa actually addressed this idea that people without children somehow need to justify their lifestyle by doing something wacky or extreme or exciting in a way that people with children don't need to justify. One of the stumbling blocks is this idea that you bring up that you have to live a very like jet set, glamorous lifestyle. And when you actually make the decision to not have kids or to stop, you know, to stop treatments and not adopt and all that, it's like this pressure starts to set in that, oh, I have to do something like amazing with my life now in order to have any meaning because I'm not having kids. Like, I have to be Oprah. You got you to gotta have something to show. Yeah. Right. And right. it's like... Yeah, what are we going to show off when other people show off their kids? And we've had a lot of people write to us that have said the same thing. And it's like, you know, f for a lot of them, it's like, that that's not what we want. Yeah, we like to travel occasionally or that or this or that, but... You know, it's okay for you to not have kids and also have a life where you find joy in simple pleasures and you have maybe a quiet life. Maybe you're very introverted. Maybe you don't like traveling. However, you're finding that is okay. So we're, we're kind of like, we're talking about all that stuff now. And I've, there were a couple of times where I felt that pressure pretty strong. And then it's like, you know, our life is meaningful, could be very meaningful without having kids and without being the jet setter. Ultimately, Eric and Melissa are pushing back against the idea that the only way to be happy is to have kids. Yeah. In our conversation, Eric kind of flipped things around on us and said, hey, you have a kid now. Do you feel like suddenly everything in your life is figured out and you're living your best life now? And I feel like what happens when you have a kid is mostly that you're just too damn busy to think about that stuff. It isn't exactly the same as being totally happy and fulfilled. Though I do feel, as a very cynical person, I could make the argument that happiness is just finding a way to properly distract yourself until death. So in a sense, kids are one of the most effective ways to create prolonged happiness. That's very dark and very you. My response to Eric's question was that I sort of think that kids delay a lot of those important who am I and what does my life mean questions. I mean, it's a cliche, but when kids finally leave the house and the parents go through midlife crises and empty nest syndrome, those questions are exactly what they're dealing with. 
And in a sense, Eric feels like there's actually a pretty big upside to being child-free, even though it's unwanted. We're in our 40s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe the bright side is we'll figure it out before the people who do it. When you guys have the empty nest, <laughs> you can call us and ask us. We'll tell you what the secret to life is. <laughs> I think that's a good point that it's the same issues, but it's just the, the kid almost lets you avoid them for a long time. I think time. that's really what it is. And that's one thing we said, like... Mm-hmm. Those of us without children, we sort of assume that parents are lucky because you guys have figured out the secret to life. And it's like, and I can say this as being a former parent, well, I still consider myself a parent, but you haven't. You're just really distracted with the day-to-day things of taking care of a, of a child. And that's important. But we shouldn't start to think that that means that they figured out the secret to life. Because right. they haven't. And it doesn't make you happy. Yeah. Having children doesn't is not a happy pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a message that you guys would want to give to anyone out there who's in the thick of fertility treatments, maybe listening to this, or maybe has stopped fertility treatments or considering it? Like, what would your message be to someone who's in that situation? We actually thought about this. I think that if you're in the middle of fertility treatments, it's okay that you probably will never listen to our podcast (laughs) because likely you'll have kids, you'll be successful and you'll move on with your life. But there's a, a tiny percentage, I don't know how tiny, but there's a percentage of people who will find frustration with fertility treatments and they may decide to consider it a stop. And I think that our podcast and the things we talk about is right up your alley. And so there's possibly light at the end of the tunnel. We're trying to figure it out. And we'd love if you came and joined us on that, that, that journey. And I, I would say to the people who are struggling that it, I know how hard it is and it seems like you're never gonna get out of that dark place, but that you're stronger, everyone is stronger than they think they are. And if you're paying attention to yourself, taking care of yourself, how you're feeling, you know, you'll, you'll be okay no matter what happens, you're gonna be okay. You can hear more of Eric and Melissa's story in more detail on their podcast. Their podcast is called Living Child Free with Eric and Melissa. Their website is livechildfree.com, and you can email them at livechildfree at gmail.com. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendrala, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.